Amanda came up to me at the very last minute and she said, swear at her. I'm like, okay, okay. But Amanda kind of thought that I was going to say it and not look at her. And I said it and I looked right at Everly, the actress playing Juju. And I just, and I just swore at her and I turned around and I was furious and I drove out and everyone erupted in laughter. everyone, welcome to The Awardist, where we are breaking down the state of the 2022 Emmys race and chatting with the actors, creators, and more who are contenders this year, and there are a lot of them, as we are finding out here. I am Entertainment Weekly Senior Awards Editor Jared Hall, and joining me this week, one of my favorite people in the world to talk TV with, EW critic Kristen Baldwin. Kristen, hi! Hi, Jared. How are you? I am wonderful. How are you? I'm good. I'm happy to be talking Emmys with you once again. I'm happy to have you here. I like suddenly the song reunited and it feels so good is in my head. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and it does feel good for, for many reasons, because uh, I, I genuinely do love talking TV with you. Um, and you have some very funny hot takes on stuff, but also because <laughs> of um, who is on our episode today. Let me break that down first quickly, uh, because uh, this episode of The Awardist is another packed one. We have two interviews for you again, first with Mackenzie Davis and Himesh Patel. They are the stars of the critically acclaimed limited series Station Eleven. Uh, I think a lot of folks know that one. It's adapted from Emily St. John Mandel's lauded novel of the same name, which, by the way, EW named Best Book of the Year in 2014. Our other guest, one of my absolute favorites, Sandra Oh, who starred this year in the Netflix comedy The Chair and the final season of Killing Eve. We won't. Well, maybe we'll get into spoilers <laughs> in that interview with her, but I'm not going to talk about them right now. You know, Sandra's performance is actually inspiring this first bit of conversation between Kristen and I because, uh, you know, she could potentially get two nominations this year. And as Kristen and I found out in preparing for this episode, there are a lot of people who are up for multiple projects. I'm going to run through them really quickly. There are like 25 names here right now. All right, deep breath. Everyone prepare. Here we go. Uh, Elle Fanning, Juno Temple, Anthony Anderson, Cecily Strong, Jillian Anderson, Kate McKinnon, Oscar Isaac, Regina Hall, <gasps> Chloe Sevigny, Nicole Kidman, Molly Shannon, Laurie Metcalf, Keenan Thompson, Julia Garner, Giancarlo Esposito, Melanie Linsky, Gugu Mbatha-Raw, Christine Baranski, Cynthia Nixon, Jason Sudeikis, Kieran Culkin, Ariana DeBose, Gerard Carmichael, Will Forte. Oh, all right. And by the way, that's not including the actors who also produce their shows and could get multiple nominations. That list includes Quinta Brunson, Jason Sudeikis, Bill Hader, Donald Glover, Steve Martin. Um, a lot of really, really incredible and worthy talent there, Kristen. I, I know we were kind of blown away just looking at the long list. I know. And there's probably more that we're not even thinking of because uh, <laughs> yeah. there just is so much TV, but there really are you know, so many, I mean, I think Sandra Oh is a great example of somebody who has a very good shot, uh, both for yeah. comedy with the chair and drama killing Eve, just because, you know, voters clearly love her. And uh, there are two eligible uh, projects. Yeah. I don't know. I just think we could see a lot of double nominees just like we did last year. Yeah. Okay. So then let's start here. Let's narrow this list down and talk about uh, a handful. First, the ones that we think are long shots, but 
not totally out of the question. There are four of them here. We can talk about Julia Garner, who is in Ozark and Inventing Anna, Cecily Strong in Schmigadoon and SNL, Molly Shannon in The Other Two and I Love That For You, and Jason Sudeikis, uh, the star, of course, of Ted Lasso, and he was a guest host this season on SNL. Let's start with uh, Miss Garner. I think uh, Ozark is an absolute lock for her. She has won this award two of the previous three times she has been up for it. Um, I, I can't imagine her not getting nominated. Can you? No, I mean, that's a given. Uh, the the more of a wild card here is inventing Hannah. I was going Very to try to do the accent that she uh, did, <laughs> but I cannot do it. I sound like Natasha uh. from Moose and Squirrel. But I, you know, that show was not good, Inventing Anna, uh, no. which was about the, uh, you know, the Shonda Rhimes series about the socialite scammer Anna Delvey. Yeah. And it, it was not Julia Garner's fault. Um, she nope. she did her very best with mm-hmm. some real draggy writing and stuff like that. I just don't think that the show itself has enough momentum to get a nomination. If anyone from that show got a nomination, it would be her certainly. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I think that's what makes it a long shot for her to be a double nominee. Mm-hmm. Well, here's my question and what I wonder could happen here um, because uh, inventing Anna is a limited series and there are a lot of mm-hmm. limited series this year, a lot of really strong women uh, who are up for lead actress in a limited series. Do you think by name recognition alone, we know that the Emmys love her, that that could benefit her when voters are looking and they're like, oh, yeah, I'm sure she was great in that. We remember seeing clips, um, which, of course, they shouldn't be voting based on <laughs> clips. That's a discussion for another time. You know, I'm going to say no here simply just because there are so many big names uh, potentially in the mix here, including people like Gillian Anderson and Viola Davis. I mean, you know, let's don't get me started on the first Renee Zellweger. Don't get me started on the first lady, but there are plenty of people (laughs) who have you know, Nicole Kidman, they have a lot of A-list celebrities who could Mm -hmm. be in contention for that category. So I don't think that it's going to be one where there are going to be a lot of names that people recognize and uh, inventing Anna. Just, I think people know the reception of it was just not good. So yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, Cecily Strong, uh, SNL, I think is her lock here. Schmigadoon, is the longer shot, but my gosh, is she like, you know, that that series competing for comedy. I think she kind of epitomizes everything that we kind of love and want and expect from a comedy. And she's doing it so well. Yeah. I mean, she is great and voters do love her. But I, I do think comedy mm. is also pretty crowded this year. It's and I, I just stacked. think that Schmigadoon is is not, you know, people who loved it really loved it. But it's, I think, small small enough that it has a real chance of being overlooked in uh in terms of you know making those you know six seven possibly eight <laughs> slots for <laughs> yeah. for that category yeah um molly shannon who i love so so much on the other two i've already talked about the show here on the podcast and then i love that for you i, I think if she's going to get one or the other it's for the other two a hundred percent i mean i don't think I love that for you is something that's going to set the world on fire. And, uh, you know, she's good in it 
you know, simply because she's just good in whatever she does, but she's great in mm-hmm. the other two. And the other two, yep. she doesn't have a ton to do in I Love That For no. You, at least in the four episodes I've seen. And so I think mm-hmm. there's a lot, it just depends, you know, certainly if, uh, you know, Showtime puts a big push behind it, maybe, but I, I, I think I really want her to get a nomination for the other two. Uh, I mm-hmm. think two in this case is a long shot. Agree. Jason Sudeikis, Ted Lasso, we don't even need to discuss. He will be nominated and uh, might, I don't know, I was going to say might be the front runner at this point to win. We'll see. There are some really strong, yeah, yeah, there are some strong male performances. Um, SNL guest host. This is another one of those years where I could almost see the SNL guest host dominating that that guest uh, actor in a comedy again. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and him returning to his old stomping ground, he had some he had some great material. I do think that, you know, people will people love him. They love to see him on SNL. You're right that the SNL category could dominate uh, or the SNL guest hosting could com- dominate in this uh, category. But yeah, I mean, Jason Sudeikis um, I don't particularly remember his SNL episode. I know what you mean. Mhm. But I also don't remember yesterday. So <laughs> it's all relative anymore. Yeah. Um, we do know that we got him back, you know, doing the running man. Yes. In, uh, what oh, up that's with that. true. What's and, up with that? That was great. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. Now let's talk about uh, some of the folks that we think stand a really good chance of doubling up. And I'll start with someone else who guest hosted SNL, Oscar Isaac. Um, and then he also got some really incredible reviews for his performance in Scenes from a Marriage. Yes. I do think both he and Jessica Chastain uh, for scenes of a marriage have a really good shot at getting nominated just for the red carpet alone. Right. Um, but, (laughs) uh, and people loved him on SNL. I mean, it was fun to see him just be completely wacky when he's just normally such a serious stud. Um, the, the other thing that he could possibly get nominated for, but I think it's much more unlikely is, uh, moon, night night. um people do love him in that but i think scenes from a marriage feels a little more (laughs) emmy-esque yes yes i know what you mean um right he could be a a triple nominee don't think that's gonna happen i don't think so but Uh, i think he has a good shot at a double for sure yes um kieran culkin also an snl guest host and of course succession where i think uh he he has a very strong shot at landing that nomination yes i mean certainly just for the body language after uh texting the photo by accident to his dad i mean a meme that will live forever uh and by the way i do remember his snl uh gig primarily for that um trying to cancel the cable uh sketch that was incredible (laughs) so um I think he he is one that people he's got, you know, an enormous reservoir of goodwill with voters. So Mm -hmm. I think he has a good shot. Yeah. Um, Sam Heifel was on the uh, podcast with me last week and we talked a bit about Yellow Jackets, specifically Melanie Linsky, how great she is. I think she should be a lock for lead actress in a drama. And I think there's a lot of support mounting behind her where she could even take this the whole way. But. Let's not jump that far ahead just yet. Let's 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 get her the nomination. She's also eligible for uh, the limited series Candy, uh, where she's co-starring uh, with uh, Jessica Biel. Um, but h- how are you feeling about Candy? I know you're you're watching that. Yes. Uh, what I will say about Candy is that Melanie Linsky is great, 
And mm-hmm. uh, she plays Betty Gore, uh, a woman who was uh, killed with an axe by her friend, comma, neighbor, who is played, uh, in this case, by Jessica Beale. The show itself um, was not one of my favorites, but Melanie Linsky is, I mean, she just shines in everything that she's in. And I think she, yeah. because uh, there's such, you know, she's got such momentum for Yellow Jackets, I think there's a good chance that people will want to recognize her for Candy, too, even if that show itself mm-hmm. uh, is not, maybe, who knows, it it could, you know, maybe I'm wrong and people will love it, but I, I think that uh, she is definitely the standout there. All right. Um, let's talk Giancarlo, who has been, I think he's been a double nominee every year for like the last three years. Uh, yes. So he may keep that momentum going. But of course, Better Call Saul, I, I think we know. Yeah. Safe to assume that one is going to happen. Godfather of Harlem, much longer shot on that one. But um, people liked that series. Yes, and they nominated him for The Mandalorian uh, in the past, which <laughs> yeah. essentially is, again, you know, I know I've made this joke before. It's like shows about, it's a show about a helmet. And, you know, he, <laughs> I don't think he had a ton to do in that show. And yet they nominated him because they love him and they should love him. And so mm-hmm. I actually think they will see his name and want to mark it down as many times as they can. So even though you're right, Godfather of Harlem is not something that, uh, has a huge amount of buzz people know that he his performances are always uh very high quality yeah l fanning uh is i'm just gonna say it she's so great in the great uh they have such tricky uh writing uh, and language to navigate in that uh and and she handles it with such ease and then the girl from plainville uh which is just uh, obviously a very disturbing story um and she she i don't want to say she has a transformation but it's it's l fanning like you've really never seen her before as well yeah i do think because and this is not necessarily a good thing but anytime somebody you know truly becomes the person they're playing in this case uh, she's playing Michelle Carter, the girl who was convicted of uh, assisting her boyfriend via text uh, mm-hmm. uh, to commit suicide. And I think there's often sort of a knee jerk, like, wow, she really looks like the real person. Let's give them a mm-hmm. nomination. And I mean, she's good in the show. The show itself is quite dull. But uh, mm-hmm. I do think there's a good chance that she will get recognized for it because, you know, voters of any, any awards, uh, body love a transformation. They love a true crime, you know, drama. And, and so Mm -hmm. I do wonder if the great has some momentum too. I mean, it's certainly got a crowded field, her performance in the great, but I think it's definitely, this was the season that it seemed to be its biggest uh, in terms yes. of recognition. Yeah, it keeps growing and growing. Uh, one of my favorite actresses in the world, Laurie Metcalf, yes. who is uh, another one who could be a triple nominee because she uh, does star in The Connors, though I think if she was going to be nominated for that, uh, it should have been for earlier in the run, right when they were dealing with Roseanne's death. Um, but more likely are nominations for The Dropout mm-hmm. and uh, Hacks, where she is a guest star in the uh, second season, which starts later this week. Um, what you think one or both are a lock? I think she's really approaching lock 
status because she's so funny and good in hacks. Mm. You know, yes. uh, she plays a uh, tour manager <laughs> named Weed. <laughs> <laughs> nicknamed, nicknamed by Pete Wentz. Yeah, and once Pete <laughs> gives you a so nickname, really funny. So funny. And in the dropout, uh, just this completely uh, sort of no nonsense and yep. uh, uh, dismissive academic who just sees through Elizabeth Holmes uh, smoke and mirrors from the get go and really, really great turn there. So, and she's one where I think when voters see her name, Mm-hmm. It's it's almost, you know, in terms, especially in categories like supporting in a, in a limited mm-hmm. series, I think she's almost uh, somebody that name recognition definitely helps, even if people haven't seen the project. But voters don't vote without seeing the project. Mm, right. Exactly. Um, and, you know, after watching her in The Dropout, I would like a spinoff limited series just on that character. I want more of her. So good. She's <laughs> yeah, just she, she's really God, she's such a great character actress, and I, uh, I love that she is really just sort of living her best career right now, just getting all these great yeah. roles. Yeah, she's she's fantastic. And then, of course, we have mentioned Sandra O, oh, who is coming up a bit later here on the podcast. Uh, Killing Eve, its final season, uh, a perennial favorite uh, of the Academy's. Well, certainly uh, the women. Jodie Comer has uh, won that category, lead actress in a drama. Um, you know, the, those two, especially those two together, they do not disappoint. And, uh, it, it, you know, it really shows in the material. It's, it's so uh, great what they, they do together. The chair, so polar opposite from mm-hmm. <laughs> Killing Eve, where she's playing the chair of an English department at, uh, a, you know, a, uh, a smaller university, um, and dealing with aging, uh, aging faculty and, and, uh, her living with her, her father's her, uh, lives with her. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, if I'm remembering correctly and, and a younger daughter and, uh, lots going on in her life. And Sandra, um, she holds that show together. Yeah. I think she's in the mix for the chair for sure. I think killing Eve is, is one where it's much more likely. Um, Mm -hmm. but there's a, it is a lot of competition right now. I feel like uh, actress in a comedy is kind of wide open. And the fact that she's even in the mix is a good sign because uh, there are so many people who gave great performances that just, you know, aren't even, they're sort of way down on the list because they're just really, it's packed. Um, so yeah. people will definitely want to recognize her for the final season of killing Eve. And I think, Given that goodwill and the fact that voters always love her, uh, the chair could get a lift from that as well. Got it. All right. Well, uh, Kristen, a question I'm asking everyone who is on here with me uh, this season. I would love to know the show or performer that you think should be getting more attention and that you would love to see go the distance with at least a nomination. What is that for you? Well, for me, uh, it's going to be Pachinko, which is mm-hmm. on Apple TV Plus, and it's the adaptation of the you know sprawling, epic, multi generational novel. And I just thought it was so beautiful. Eight episodes. It, it looks beautiful. It's incredibly uh, well written and gorgeous. And I learned so much about Korean and Japanese history more than I ever did in, you know, all of my years of higher education. And it, but it, it doesn't feel like homework. It's just this beautiful tale of several generations of people as they make their way, uh, you know, 
first leaving Korea and then settling in Japan and dealing with the loss of home. And it's it's an incredibly uh, well done and gorgeous show, just renewed for season two, by the yeah. way. And I think right now, maybe this is crazy, but I, you know, I feel like Squid Game is is obviously, you know, a, a very, mm-hmm. very strong contender for best drama. And I think there's a little bit of like, oh, well, we already have one foreign language, one Korean drama. I'm not sure we can do another. And and also there's just so many uh, contenders. I feel like it would absolutely have the quote unquote Squid Game slot if Squid Game had already, you know, had come out a year earlier. But I mm-hmm. just don't think the world would end if the voters recognize two worthy foreign language dramas. And I think in any other year, this would be, you know, this would be absolutely in the mix. So I'm really, really pushing for it because it's, I mean, it's incredible television. Mm. Well, uh, I was going to say stranger things could happen. Stranger things have happened. Um, (laughs) But, uh, you know, this TV Academy, they, uh, they do tend to surprise sometimes. Um, or, you know, times when you think, uh, we know who all the five nominees are going to be in this category. They throw you for a loop. Um, so fingers crossed we will see that happen again here. Um, another series that a lot of people really love this year uh, is Station Eleven. And folks, I want you to stay tuned because we have an interview coming up with those two stars, Mackenzie Davis and Himesh Patel. Uh, this um, story came out, uh, the book, in 2014, but uh, it ended up having a really oddly timed adaptation, a story about a pandemic uh, that was filmed during and aired during the pandemic, but it's not what you think. If you have not seen it, if you've not read the book, it's um, it's a it's a really beautifully hopeful story. It's not dealing with kind of all the crap that we have to deal with in our day-to-day lives. Uh, so I encourage you to stick around for that conversation. It is coming up right after this quick break. Welcome back to The Awardist. All right, folks, without any further ado, here is EW's Dalton Ross with Station Eleven stars Mackenzie Davis and Himesh Patel. Thanks again to both of you for taking the time to do this. Really exciting. I was telling Himesh, I just, I, I love the show so much and so super excited to talk to you all about it. It's easy though, because I, I remember watching the show when it first started and telling people about it. And sometimes there'd be a little like, wait, is that the pandemic show? Like, ah, oh, I don't know if I can handle that right now. And I'd be like, no, it's it's actually like oddly hopeful and inspiring as opposed to super bleak and depressing. I was curious, like how much convincing did you all have to do at first with like friends and family that like this was a show they could handle while we were all sort of going through our own pandemic? I never want anyone to watch anything that I'm in that I know. So I, that's not like <laughs> familiar, but I definitely feel like when, when Himesh and I were doing this sort of international press way before the show came out um there was a real energy of like don't you think no one's gonna watch this <laughs> um and i guess we had to sort of counter that at the time i felt the same way and also felt some personal responsibility because of like episode one which is the episode that my character is very much sort of the the driving force of mm-hmm. is the one that veers closest to what we've all been through recently mm-hmm. and so i part of me was like i get why some people were saying that because I think they'd maybe either they'd only watch the first episode or they were thinking about it in those terms. So 
I could understand it, but at the same time, I was very keen to explain to people that it really doesn't linger in that sort of place. It goes into a much more hopeful um, place. Yeah, I remember watching that theater scene, and it's interesting, Hamesh, because I it was you know spring Broadway season here in New York, and I remember going to a few shows like Six and the Minutes, like two mm. days before Broadway shut down, and you'd hear people coughing, yeah. and you'd get worried. And then to see it, you're right. It, that part, that part felt very real. But as as the series goes on, and you know, I'm certainly not advocating mass death and the collapse of society, but like, is there something oddly romantic and appealing about this world that we see in the story, like without technology and some of the seemingly sort of like insignificant things that dictate so much in our modern lives? I found it sort of oddly refreshing mackenzie i don't know if <laughs> filming it if you felt that way yeah definitely i mean i think there's this thing people talk about that there's like a, a frustration in in screenwriting now that like there's always a cell phone like there's always a way out of a problem you're never stranded without and i mean yeah you run out of batteries and then you solve that problem but there's a sense of like there's always hope insight and if you always have like some tether to somebody outside of your immediate surroundings to save you then you don't have to really engage with your immediate surroundings and i think that's the rather than like technology's bad the the refreshing thing about um, making the show and, and the story within the show is just how much your sort of fellow human matters to you, either because they pose danger, but mostly because they can help in really essential ways that, um, that you can't reach beyond as far as you can throw a stone to get that help. So I think that's a really, uh, like intense sort of community driven, um, aspect of the show. Filming a movie or TV series can be kind of this, you know, sometimes like a bunker mentality, right? With this sort of family of cast and crew where you hunker down together, you get really close during this like super intense experience. I, I was curious, how was it different filming during COVID in terms of like having to socially distance, wear masks where maybe you can't see your camera operator's face or, or hear what they're saying through that mask or, or spend too long, too close with certain people? How was that whole experience different. It was really hard. It was really, really strange. Um, we were all sort of observing very strict rules at the time. You know, we shot this, we started shooting once we picked up after having shot episodes one and, um, and three uh, at the beginning of 2020. We started in January of 2021. So no one was vaccinated. You know, that hadn't really started. And um, so we were all in full PPE, you know, masks, visors. Some people had to wear goggles as well. Like it was full on, you know, we had to really go to those lengths. Um, and so, yeah, we, di we didn't know what half the crew looked like, you know. Um, uh, most of the crew, I'd say, probably right, you, uh, at least 75% of the crew because um, I knew a handful of people who came with us from Chicago, but most of the crew were, were Toronto crew. And so they were all new people. And, you know, we were going on this very intense, we began shooting with episode seven, which is a very intense episode, very emotional. And we were having to go to these sorts of emotional places and were carried by all these wonderful professionals. But I kind of didn't know what any of them looked like. You know, you know we were just sort of making up at the bottom half of their face, really, which was so really sad in a way to some extent, you know. Um, 
for me personally, I got my sort of um, end to that story on my last day when we were shooting outside and production got some cupcakes as a sort of send off for me. And, uh, and so people had to like pull their mask down to eat the cupcake and I actually got to see their face finally. And it was actually a really emotional moment for me. These people that I at that point had then been working with for four months and, you know, it was the first time actually seeing their face, not what I'd made up in my head of their face. Um, and it was really lovely. But I know, Mackenzie, you guys did like a ritual, didn't you, um, when you guys were shooting? Yeah, once we moved outside, because we shot half the show sort of while it was the winter in Toronto indoors. And then once we ran out of indoor stuff, we had to move outdoors. And then we shot the rest of the show outside. And once we were outside, we would have um, like rituals on Fridays and then Thursdays as well, because um, everybody liked the like experience that Himesh is talking about so much called Show Your Face. Wait, what was it called? Face Reveal Friday. Face Reveal Fridays. I have a shirt for you, by the way. Um, and everyone would stand in a circle and one person from the crew would be like nominated and they'd stand in the middle of the circle and pull down their mask and everyone would like ecstatically it's, and it, it, it's funny looking back on it because it does feel like a different era now. Um, just how far we are from this very intense time when this was standard protocol, but um, the like, glee and and ecstasy that would spontaneously erupt from deep within your body when you saw the lower third of somebody's face was so emotional and everyone would be like clapping and laughing and it was just so nice um it was so nice it's it's yeah it's really does feel like we're talking about science fiction like even you saying that that first um uh, the theater scene was so weird and it was so weird when I first saw the show six or seven months ago. And it's not so weird now. Like, I don't know. It'll be interesting how the show ages. Cause it came out as like Omicron was rising <laughs> and it was a really intense time for it to come out. And so it was like laden with that sort of, you know, energy and trauma, but the longer, you know, we get away from March 17th, 2020, like the more it feels like we dreamt it or something. I don't know if you're having that experience, but I, I, I can't believe what it was like to shoot in Toronto. It was so intense. And that's the opposite of the way my life is now. And it's crazy that that very quickly was our normal reality. Yeah, I mean, it was only 12 months ago that we were living that way, you know, and it's, we were shooting the it's show. Like unthinkable. So. <laughs> yeah. It's fascinating how you two only directly interact with each other in two scenes of the show, but they're the two kind of biggest scenes of the show. So I'm, I'm just curious, there's a lot obviously I want to ask you about these scenes, but how do you jump in with another actor and sort of go from zero to 60, because these are big emotional scenes, without having a chance to kind of warm up with each other a whole lot. I, I imagine that's a somewhat unique experience. Well, we first met in, I think, what was it, November of 2020? Yeah. In London. And, um, and we went for a walk outside because that's what you could do at that point. <laughs> and that was nice. So we kind of touched base before we all decamped to Toronto. And then what I think what was good was this, this starting um, the journey again with shooting episode seven, where when it's me and Naban who played my brother and Matilda who plays young Kirsten, 
And then Mackenzie was there observing it all um, as a sort of spectral version of her character. And so we were kind of hanging out a lot, actually, to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I know it did a lot of um, great stuff for you with your character. But, but yeah, beyond that, it was, yeah. I mean, I, we got to know each other like in one big punch at the beginning of the show and then didn't have a lot until we shot the end of the show. But I mean, yeah, but I, I feel like we knew each other as humans. Quite Like I texted with you mm. more than I texted with a lot of people. Like we were very involved in the making of the show and, and our experience. It was like a very heightened time um, emotionally mm. and um, pandemic. <laughs> um, and so I felt, I don't know, because that question has come up so often and, um, and I'm always sort of surprised by it because I feel like we work together so much, but I guess a lot of that just wasn't um, recorded. I think like, it's a, it's a good example of a sort of, uh, g giving us an idea of how the, how the show is perceived by viewers as opposed to mm -hmm. us from the inside, you know, because mm -hmm. from the inside we're going, oh, we were hanging out loads. Like, why, why is it a surprise? But obviously, yeah, the characters, they don't really cross paths until until that, those last few moments. Um, I was there the whole time, but I'm yeah. not really on camera very often. But, like, while yeah. we shot that episode, I was there most days just, like, lingering yeah. in a corner watching things. So it feels, yeah. yeah, when I think about that, I'm like, well, what do you mean? We had all of episode seven together, but I'm just like sinking into the walls. <laughs> <laughs> but we also let, we leaned into some of that sort of what would inev inevitably be a sort of awkward energy when they do yeah. finally cross paths. We wanted to make sure that those scenes weren't just sort of, you know, we didn't want it to be like that thing that you can sometimes have with friends where you don't see them for ages and then you just kind of, you know, uh, hit the ground running again because it wouldn't be that their relationship would be something very different and it would actually be slightly, they wouldn't quite know what to say to each other and that sort of thing. So we were aware of that for those two kind of two scenes, basically that we got together. Let's talk a little more specifically about the scenes. Uh, tell me about the big reunion recognition scene. It's a, it's a minute and a half of essentially staring and hugging. Uh, tell me how you want to play that moment. Cause it's a wordless moment meaning a lot more has to be conveyed in other ways when you can't use a uh, dialogue to, to tell the story. Tell me about how you guys want to play that and the discussions maybe you all had going into that scene. I, I'm not sure if it was just the final scene or if it was that scene as well, but I believe we stripped some dialogue out of that scene. I, 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 Himesh and I were pretty aligned that the enormity of that experience was such that you couldn't capture it in words that like it would, anything would be trite, no matter how beautifully written it was or like right on the money is there's no words for one, like <laughs> you're alive and you're like, I'm frozen in time in his mind as a seven year old. Well, no, let's say 13, um, like a 12 year old, 11, sort of like preteen era, um, <laughs> little girl. <laughs> alive or dead, that's the only Kirsten he ever knew. And then he's confronted with, you know, a woman who's very tall and, and a full woman. <laughs> I just imagine that must be so difficult to, to like align those two um, fields of vision, you know, to make one clear picture. 
Um, and yeah, it's just, there's no way to articulate what we meant to each other in that time and what he meant to me and what it means to know that he's alive and the sort of like almost heartbreak that he's alive as well. Cause if he was dead, then like he didn't leave me. I mean, there's just so many things going on in that, that moment that to try and be like, it's you like anything sucks. <laughs> yeah. And all those, all those sorts of the difficulties of those, like, you know, moment um, and uh, sort of things like that like if if you're alive that means you left me it mm-hmm. opens up a whole other question that's what is in those awkward sort of silences really There's, and those are sort of the second scene really but that that initial meet is is um full of a lot of um, yeah things you just there are no words for really i remember there was one take though where you the camera was on you mackenzie and I feel like it went on for like two minutes before Jeremy said cut. Yeah. <laughs> and we were just hugging and I was like, what is she doing? What's crying? Just what crying. She- <laughs> just crying. Just crying for two minutes. I was like, this must they be wanted, exhausting. They, they wanted to like cut away to the past. They could come back and they'd have lots of crying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> cry, cry, cry. Who recognizes whom first? I do. I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you do. Yeah, yeah. Because you're in the shadows and I'm by the, yeah, so. Yeah, by the party. Well, you have a better reference, visual reference point probably for him than he would have from you. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. that's the other yeah. thing is that it's like sort of magic that he does recognize me and not like a leap. I think I think that happens and I think the casting's like great <laughs> with Matilda and I, but I think that like it's sort of, you would only recognize me if I was, you know, sort of locked stare on you in that way. How, how, what's it like for you guys to watch it play back with, you know, you have Dan Romer's sort of sweeping score in there and watching it sort of play back. Obviously you're in there in the moment when you film it, what's it like for you then when you see it put all together? It's kind of amazing. I mean, Dan's score is incredible. So really incredible. Like, <laughs> So much of the, the crying that I did watching the show was so informed by the emotion that he brought to the whole piece with his score. I think it's stunning. So, yeah, I think seeing it all sort of layered up like that and, and really getting a sense of what our DOPs were doing, they were really amazing. Mm. It was, I think it, it was really a testament. It, I think that's what I loved about the film, the final product. Really, was that, you know, it was a, it was a challenging time to make a, a TV show for anyone. Um, we can only speak to our own experience, and it was challenging in so many ways. A lot of people were sacrificing a lot of stuff. We were sacrificing a, com- a comfortable way of making stuff that we knew for a, for a whole new way of making stuff that was scary and weird. You know that we couldn't we didn't know what each other looked like and all that sort of stuff. So for it to come together and and you realize that everyone was still at the top of their game and and it all came together in such a beautiful way. It's really, really wonderful. How, how are you, I mean, Mackenzie, you mentioned earlier, you don't like your friends and family to watch. You don't want them to know about when you're in something. How are you guys at, at watching yourselves on screen? I've gotten better at it. I used to hate it so much that I really wouldn't do it. And then I think it's kind of a good you know, it's not theater. It's not like you do it once and then 
that's it. Like there, you can learn if you allow yourself to watch the whole thing being put together that like not all the thoughts you have are communicated. Or if you have these thoughts that are going to be very subtle, like make sure the director knows what you're thinking. So that like they're in on the subtext that's really important to you. And I think I didn't, I didn't used to think about that until I started to, to watch what was actually coming across a bit more. I also think like, I still never want to watch myself and it's become clearer to me that that's, very rude <laughs> to the people that you made this thing with <laughs> to be like, it's again, like prioritizing the sort of actor experience over like we all spent six months making this show. And then they spent another six months putting it together. You can sit down and watch this like opus that was created that you're a part of. Don't be a jerk. So I'm good at it. What about you, Hamash? Yeah, I think I've always enjoyed watching it because I because I'm I'm interested in all the different pieces of the whole thing and and so you know it's interesting for me to to see how it all came together just from a technical point of view I guess because I'm a bit nerdy about that sort of thing but also um, I I still am just hypercritical of myself so I can't I, can't, I, I there's an unhealthy side to it still for me that I'm, I'm I need to get better at basically but I I. I, I struggle to sort of see the good stuff and I only see the stuff I didn't do that I wish I'd done. I feel like the show like easily could have ended on that hug uh, had it wanted to, but then we get this sort of coda scene later with you two walking together before you get to that fork in the road. And it's actually the only scene where you, you two actually speak to each other. It's also the final scene of the show. How did you both want to approach that? You You touched on this a little bit, Mackenzie, earlier, but like, and you touched on this too, Amesh, and like, I, I feel like there, what I like about it is that there is like a slight awkwardness there almost that I really like. Tell me about the discussions you guys had about specifically that scene. I feel like, well, we, we, I came over to your garden, didn't I? And we ran, we ran through the, the dialogue a little bit. And, um, and I think we, we realized that, you know, that we didn't need to change anything that had been written, even though Patrick was open to it, you know, uh, we, we thought the dialogue was great. It was about allowing those moments uh, to breathe, to, to, to lean into the awkwardness, basically. And, and thankfully, Jeremy was on the same page with that as well. So we could, um, we could play it that way and, and really lean into that. The fact that they haven't seen each other for 20 years, there's this huge question hanging over the whole thing now because he is alive. So what happened? It was about, you know, did have they just spoken about it? Did they talk about it all through the night? Have they just sort of celebrated everything that's happening and they're leaving that, you know, until now? So then there's a whole question of who's going to jump first, you know, who's going to, if they ever will. I think what's beautiful about the dialogue is that it, it skirts to the edges of that, but I think they both realize they don't, they don't need to do that today, I think mm. is kind of what's really lovely about it. They just need to enjoy the fact that this thing is, this thing has happened, and and it was the chances of it happening were so slim, and it's happened in such a beautiful way. I think, yeah, we um, we found a way to that. I think. I think much like the scene before, there's just enormous questions that can't that it feels cheap to even see them on screen. Like what felt really nice in that scene is that there are like apologies and little gifts and little thank yous that are like peppered throughout this sort of awkward 
walk, but it's basic. It's like, um, they're like constantly giving each other something with the wrong words. Uh, and it's really beautiful. Um, and I think that encompasses how big it is in a way that saying the right thing never could. I even love sort of the awkward double goodbye. Mm -hmm. Like he starts to walk, you're like, goodbye again. Mm -hmm. like, All right. Like it's just, it's so perfect. Mm -hmm. It's just so real. Um, Mackenzie, as you were playing the adult Kirsten, how much attention did you want to pay to what Matilda Lawler was doing as young Kirsten? How much did you want to think about syncing that up or say, this is a person that's been through so much since then that we don't really need to worry about that? How was, what was sort of your approach on that? I guess a combination of both because of the shooting schedule. I got to shoot episode seven first again. So I was just watching Matilda in a room for like three weeks before I had to put anything really down of my own. Um, and I'm not like the like mimicry or like choosing a tick or having us have the exact same story doesn't help me in my work that much. Um, I much prefer just sort of like being around somebody and not feeling the need to, to like find a, a like mannerism that we both have. There's certain things that she would do that I was like, Oh, that's nice. You like do this instead of my instinct, which would be this. Um, and so some of that stuff I think carried through, but I really believe like who you are at 11 and who you are at 28 are very different people while carrying the same, like sort of essential spirit. Um, and especially in this case, when so much has happened, it felt fine to me and truthful to have them be distinct. Um, and I think trying to hew closer to like one single character doesn't really tell the story of a person that's had many, many lives in between the last time we saw her and now. Himesh, I'm curious for you because obviously there we have, you know, two different people playing, you know, young and older Kirsten, you're playing sort of young uh, and, and older at the same time. What was it sort of, um, what was the biggest difference for you, for you between younger and older Jeevan? Uh, the hair <laughs> was very different. <laughs> the amount of time I spent in, in the hair and makeup trucks was, was a lot longer. Um, yeah, so uh, that, that and and I don't mean that in a disingenuous way. Actually, it really helped me separate it, and in a way, think of this guy as a whole other character who's got twenty years of more backstory to to play with. I kind of mapped out a vague idea of what his life has been since then, and it was really kind of fun, really, to kind of in a way, it felt like to me, and I said this before somewhere that. <clears throat> doing everything I did in episode 10 really felt like I was jumping into a different TV show in a way for me, my experience, because I felt like I was playing a, in a way, a completely different character or a very, very different version of the character that I played so far. And then I was jumping into this whole other context of, of being at the airport, being uh, in and around the traveling symphony, all of whom I'd, I'd not met uh, really because Again, we weren't able to hang out outside of work, so you know I didn't hadn't met any of them until I got to work uh, uh, shooting episode ten. So it was it was like a whole other experience for me that that whole bit of the show, um, and uh, and so there was a separation in many ways for me between that version of Jeevan and this version of Jeevan. Um, so yeah, it was it kind of 
all the contexts sort of aligned. What was it like for, for you all watching other elements of the story that did not involve you all, like the Miranda storyline? What was it like getting to sort of see all that put together? Like, we're doing this over here, and here's what's happening over here. So nice. Yeah. Also, because you get to enjoy the thing you're a part of without being worried you're going to pop up in a scene every so often. Like, and <laughs> I mean, I love the airport stuff. Episode five is just my favorite episode. Episode nine is also my favorite episode. I just think they're so beautiful and it's so, I mean, we had the scripts. We knew that there were many tales being told, but the way it was put together and the way that you just, it was hard to like sink into the, um, what it would feel like to have all these things happening at once. And, and I, I, yeah, I loved it. Yeah. I mean, get, I met Danielle dead while I played Miranda when we were shooting episode one, because they were shooting episode three simultaneously. But I had, I wasn't in episode three. I had no idea what we were doing, what they were doing. Or, you know, I hadn't seen Danielle's work before. So then when I watched episode three, I was just floored by it, by the episode as a whole. But just Danielle is, I mean, it's one of the best performances of the year, hands down. So just, um, yeah, it was really lovely to just be able to watch something and be, it felt like I was watching an episode of TV of a, show, of a whole other show and just let it like sink in and be, be blown away. I saw an interview where, where Patrick was, uh, of course, asked about the possibility of a season two, even though this was billed as a limited series. And he said, hey, you know, it feels right just to kind of end it here. But he also did say, and I'll quote, year 25 seems like kind of an interesting space, I have to say. So what what would be your thoughts about possibly coming back to this world five years later? Why? Why was year 25 an interesting space? <laughs> <laughs> we, we talked about this with Patrick recently. We did a podcast together. And I feel like what's really interesting is either like an anthology version of the show, although I forget what the pitch was for that, or what's really interesting is the second season is same actors, like a repertory troupe, playing the actual Station Eleven book in entirety. And like, it's a space opera. Yeah. Isn't that a cool, that wasn't my idea, that was Patrick's, but it's like, that's, I don't know, I like that's such a cool addition to the story and doesn't feel like, a cash grab. You know what I mean? Like it feels really mm -hmm. authentic and interesting and like a very strange experiment. Yeah, I think that'd be great. I feel like we're basically setting out our store here, aren't we? It's like if 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 that's what it is, we'll probably like, do it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no to everything but that. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know how much you all think about, you know, your characters as their stories go on and the camera shuts off. But like, you know, they, they say at the end there, like, all right, I'll, we're going to put the airport on the wheel. I'll see you then in a year. Do you think they, do you think that happens? Think they meet up in a year at the airport with the whole family and everything? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so sad to be like, no, he just didn't. <laughs> <laughs> it was like such a <laughs> moment. And it was just sometimes it's nice of a white lie. <laughs> I do, I do think that though. Like, like he got in a boat to get there, but then at the end, he's just like hobbling off through the through the forest with like a cane. Uh, and I was like, if there is another wolf, I mean, he's screwed. He's not. He's not like 
there's no more wolves and they're completely could, gone by year 2025 or 2025. yeah there's no more wolves they just don't exist yeah that's why they died we out. <laughs> i can't express how much i love the show i mean i really really adored it i mean and and i i adored your work in it uh and i really appreciate the time thank you thank you First of all, my thanks to Dalton Ross uh, for conducting that interview there. Always uh, a, a great conversation he has with folks. Um, really impressive. I know they talked about it there. Filming during uh, a pandemic, all of these productions that have, it is not easy. Uh, it has kind of come with some sacrifices that, you know, like in our everyday lives at work, uh, the same on on the productions of TV and, and movie sets. People aren't with each other, and that's so important for actors that they can kind of have, you know, that time with each other, and they can't in these cases. Um, so really all the more impressive uh, that they told this story about a pandemic during a pandemic. Well, and also that it ended up being such a hopeful story as opposed to something so grim. Um, and, yeah, I know uh, it, I can I can barely, you know, make myself lunch during a pandemic, let alone make a TV show. So more power to them. Yeah. It's really impressive. And some great performances. I think Mackenzie Davis is always great in everything she does. Someone else who's fantastic, Sandra Oh. We have that interview coming up right after this. Don't go anywhere. All right. Welcome back. You know, and I hope love her like I do from Grey's Anatomy and certainly miss her a lot on that show. But she has done some really incredible work in her time since leaving then, including Killing Eve and The Chair. So here now is EW's Ashley Boucher with Sandra O. Oh. Hello, Sandra O. Oh. Thank you for joining us. How are you? Great. I'm great. So happy to be here. Oh my gosh, we are just so excited to have you on today's episode, and we really have a ton to get through talking about both Killing Eve and The Chair, so let's just dive right in. All right. Let's start with Killing Eve. Mm -hmm. So this was the final season. First of all, just how do you feel about that? Oh... Um, you know, whenever I'm watching anything and it's set in London, I now I have tremendous pangs uh, that I already miss London. Um, it, I'm, I'm really very sad about it because it was just a, a wonderful experience. And I'm glad because um, it was creatively, we had to kind of wrap it up. It was very, very challenging, I think, the entire time to keep that type of tension. Um, while, while, you know, authentically growing and developing the character's relationship. So I think for me, it's, this always for me has to feel correct to end the show is if it ends correctly, uh, uh, creatively. And I think that it did. Okay, great. Yeah. So we'll start talking about the final episode and then backtrack because we're kind of already there. Yeah. In the finale, we finally get to see Villanelle and Eve like as a couple and Mm -hmm. it's kind of glorious for like just a few minutes just a little blip of kind of what could be Mm -hmm. so first part of my question is 
What was it like for you and Jody to film those scenes? Did it feel like this was a long time coming? Was was it fun to shoot? Just mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about that. You know, well, Jody and I always really enjoy working together. And I think the majority of Killing Eve, we would spend lots of chunks of times apart and usually come back together at the end of the season. And this is also the mm-hmm. same. What I loved was about exactly that. And, you know, really, really, really working very closely with the writers to develop this is that I just felt that for the audience, for it's just act four, it's act four that they have in some ways a normal relationship, meaning that it's boring, that they're dro- that they're driving, that there's a simple kind of simplicity of being free and it's their most quiet you know, they are away from the craziness. They're away from the 12 and they're actually just together and their intimacy grows because barriers are broken down. And I think finally Eve, when she comes to Villanelle and basically says, you should know why I'm here. It's kind of like, let's just fucking cut the bullshit. You know why I'm here. There's a bigger level thing of like stuff to do, but you should feel why I'm here. And I think that does get through you know, the start where there's like an intimate moment where where Villanelle is lifting up Eve's shirt to look at her scar to try and find right. it. And Eve's just like, what is going on? And, and it, you know, Villanelle delightfully says, let's continue on in this journey. Let's just go steal their stuff and get out of here. And then it's, for me, it was, uh, it was great to play. It was really fun to play. But it was also like... Um, in, in the creative space, but you're not exactly sure what's happening. You're not exactly sure what's coming. So like that kiss, right? We're trying to make it, uh, while we're trying to make it um, uh, a surprising kiss, an authentic kiss, it's like Jody and I didn't really talk about it at all. And when oh, we were really? Sending, no, no, not at all. And it was also like she was like, the, the kiss was moved around a bunch of places. And for me, I was like, okay. this is where this should happen. We just have a really, really intimate moment of peeing beside someone. <laughs> of peeing oh, yeah. beside someone, right? <laughs> and then it was just like the the walk, the the this is the moment before the calm before the storm. And, uh, you know, we just, Stella just rolled the camera and it was just like, when it feels right, do what you need to do and be together and free for a second. Um, And that's what happened. It really, really felt great. It felt really, really great when we did it. We both could feel it. Yeah. And just watching that moment too, I think it, it definitely came off as very organic and yeah. And I think as a viewer, you kind of have this like woohoo moment mm-hmm. of like, this is what we've been waiting for. Were there other moments along this road trip where you were thinking about putting the kiss instead? Or was it just kind of always going to be around that time, but just kind of letting the camera roll? For me, I thought that was the strongest moment. There was a suggestion of a kiss actually in that, in that, uh, but the sense of the scene changed in that moment where they're lying together, together in bed. Yeah. Do you know okay. what I mean? Because there's so much that uh, Villanelle never says. Her emotional mm-hmm. life is in her actions. 
And you see Eve talking about it much more, right? So it was like, how will we come to an, this is so intimate. Should we bring the intimacy here in this moment? Um, And that there's an agreement, you know what I mean? It's, It's that the kiss will mean different things. You know, there was a kiss a bit a bit later. And for me, I felt it was like too quick because it's like, for me, I just wanted them isolated so they could really just be together in complete privacy. And I love that they're in the middle of the woods, basically. Um, and they just seem to have a lot of privacy to be themselves and be even both of them are actually joyful for a second. And they're yeah. joyful with each other. I know. And I think a lot of people... You know, if you get to have that moment in your life, you'll, you know what that is. You know what that is. And that it's not some crazy faraway thing, you know, where it's like, you know, some romantic notion that's not achievable. They actually get the achievable. They, they really get it. They achieve it. They do. And it really is like how you're saying when they're completely alone, because then as soon as they join up with other people, everything starts to go downhill again. It does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so obviously uh, they finally find the 12 on this Uh cruise ship where there's a (laughs) wedding going on, like such a funny contrast there. But then we get this heartbreaking end where Villanelle and Eve end up in the water Villanelle is shot and you know there's all this like it's it's kind of beautiful imagery with both of you in the water um but then Eve pops up and is kind of gasping for breath Mm -hmm. and it's kind of this sense of like she's gasping for life but also like that life in Villanelle is gone Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so I'm wondering now like so you said that you think that it ended the right way but how difficult was it to come to that decision? Maybe the whole team that Villanelle was going to die. You know, the show is called Killing Eve, mm-hmm. but Killing mm-hmm. Eve is the one left alive. Mm-hmm. Well, one, I'll just start with the fact that I've always been fascinated by the title of our show. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a totally. lot of ways to interpret what that is. And I've said this before, but, um, you know, before, before the world changed for everyone so drastically, mm-hmm. you know, at the beginning of 2020, it was, it was different. It, it wasn't Villanelle who was going to die. It was probably going to be me. Yes. Okay. But then as we went through the pandemic and so many things have changed, the writers were like, we need to pivot. And I'm like, okay, oh. I, t- I totally get it. I totally get it. And, and also in the way of like, the, the people come to the show through Eve, right? She's our every person. Villanelle is still in some ways a fantastical character. You know, she is outside the boundaries. I mean, so is, so is Eve too, but she's outside the boundaries of these worlds and she's almost magical in that way. So I think it was to get the everydayness of the every woman who actually survives all of this. I thought that was Correct. I thought that was correct, and and that Eve should should survive. So during your pro- that process, when you're saying it, it's like I, you know, for a shorthand, you know, talking to coming up with this with the the director, um, uh, Stella Karate, she the boat and then the water. You know, our shorthand was, uh, the Godfather and the piano. And, and I was, I was just like, you you know, there's so much visual there that I think people already understand cinematically that for me, I didn't mind it. 
because the the above and below of it, right? Why it was hilarious and ridiculous, but also correct, is that Eve is life. And what Villanelle realizes when she's seeing Eve dancing and after she's killed everyone is that she's death, right? She is. So you, you have the symbolism of like on top, you have a marriage, you have love, you have celebration, you have joy. And underneath, you have violence, you have power, you have this, and you have destruction. So the intercutting of it was was important to us. And then when the when the fall happened in the water, and I will say at the I, I that the idea of the two women falling in water somehow <laughs> was was always a, a a part of it. It was like who's going to come up? <laughs> it was like who's going to come up alive? Right. Or you know, were 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 we all both going to die? Um, and, um, that, that for us was really also, you know, again, you can, you can, you can say so much storytelling in cinematically and also in action, you know, where she tries to, to reach her and then, you know, because it's also, I mean, that's also the heartbeat of the romance of the show. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Yeah. The whole show, it's this. Will they, won't they? They could maybe make it work here. Oh, but then something happens. And then they finally make it work. And then it's like over. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to go back to it because it was a very emotional scene for Jody to shoot. Oh my gosh, I'm sure. So, so I know, but I will say this. The moment when I feel like everything kind of fell into place when Villanelle is watching Eve um, dancing. Because I feel you get this sense of Villanelle's humanity the most. And that's the moment where the thing that she's been searching for, you see it happen to her and it happens Mm -hmm. to her through Eve. You know what I mean? And ultimately the every woman's survival Eve gets, and it happens through Villanelle. So yeah, that's, that's ultimately what they, they get from each other. You know what I mean? There is the romance, right? And it's all, you know, anyone who's gone through like a, a good romance or a bad romance, it's like what you, uh, what you can gather from it, you know, how much it teaches you about yourself. Totally. Wow. Yeah. I just, I love how you put that so beautifully. It's like such a powerful ending moving on to like the season, this final season as a whole, a little bit, I felt watching it like a lot of the question of the season was, can people really change or do people ever really change? Mm-hmm. And that was illustrated really nicely in the moment when Eve has the flashback to doing karaoke with Bill. And oh, Luca great. And yeah. Um, so what do you think? Do you think that Eve changed over the course of the show or do you think that she was that person all along? I'm so glad that you you mentioned the karaoke because um, when that came about, uh, the writers said, because that's episode seven is kind of like, you know, Eve's most kind of thoughtful episode. Yeah. And I needed a, an emotional charge to that episode. So they said, oh, she's going to sing karaoke. And I was just like, why? And they said, oh, we, yeah. it just set it somewhere. And I knew what they could not possibly know was that there is footage from the pilot that was never put into so the show. Was that originally yes. going to be in the yes. pilot? Yes. Oh my that, God. Can I just tell you? So that karaoke scene 
was the original opening to okay, Killing Eve. I was, like, I was like, this is the night before yes. when yes. the pilot starts. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's a, exactly. Oh That's God. what it is. So, so when we shot it, that was the opening. And then Phoebe changed it and we, we, we shot something else. But I knew, I'm like, there is footage. Because <laughs> wow. I was like, okay, if you want me to be in the karaoke, I know I can make an emotional moment out of right. it to didn't exactly demonstrate that change where she feels how much her life has changed, how much she has lost, the stakes of it all. So it was great to see that footage you know what I mean? Beside each other. And then you can have the comparison because I will say, you know, when we were doing some press, um, Jody and I saw a picture of us from the first season, like a still. And we were both like, Oh my God, who is that? Uh, we both, uh, we both felt, and I absolutely felt so strongly that Eve changed completely yeah. physically. And I really wanted to start the season strong with her change because because I wanted to, just because one, I thought it was right dramatically and action wise, we wanted to put her in, I wanted to put her in, in a very, very active place. So let's start this change and then push it into where I've always felt this show is, is a more kind of thoughtful or existential place where, because this, this show is about the inside of a woman's head. Right. Do, you, do you know what I mean? And how we yeah. how we deal with how we deal with the larger structures that are trying to kill us. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. so for me, I wanted to push that into an interior emotional place where you could see that change. So I'm I'm so happy you brought that up. Oh my gosh. Yes, definitely. That was like one of the number one takeaways I had. Oh. One final question on killing Eve. Mm. What is your, it's kind of general. Hmm. What's just your biggest takeaway from doing this show? I feel like it was such, it made such a splash, you know, and it's been such a special thing to watch. So what are your takeaways from being part of it? You know, uh, Killing Eve hit at such a specific time. I think we came out in 18. And it was right after Me Too. Mm -hmm. And it was... Uh, it was an opening where uh, uh, a new voice, a fresh voice, a very uh, female voice, uh, a female-led show. Um, there was an opening for it, and that we were all, we had already been making what a lot of people, and also Times Up, we had already been making what Times Up had been like calling for, mm-hmm. right? And it was great to be a part of it. It's like yes. Correct. This is the show. This is let us present to you something where it's like where it's written by a woman and it's produced by a woman and it stars, you know, two women. It's about these two men. You know what I mean? So this is what it is. And I think it was uh, amazing and very, very special because you can't plan these things that it hit at a very specific time and a good time. And then moving through it, it's like. It's um, it. I got to a much more thoughtful place because I'll also say in that in that space of episode seven where it's the um, actually it's right after of uh, the karaoke scene. Uh, you know, Eve is at a place where she just doesn't know how to go on, 
And Martin, the, 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 the therapist is, is, is basically saying, you need to, you need to make it smaller. You need to basically go to the people who you love and who you right. know love her, which is what spurs her to go to see them exactly. now. Right. But it's those basic things that I deeply felt, um, that I had to come in touch with myself. And I'm sure many people did during the pandemic. What are the things that matter? How do we go on? How do we survive? Those things really um, affected and influenced, I know, uh, how I played the character and how I wanted to, the, to develop the character. Oh my gosh. That's so just like, exactly what you're saying, like spot on with the times. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of amazing how the show started out being spot on with the times and ended in a mm -hmm. similar way, especially how you said that the storyline kind of shifted after the pandemic. It really did. You know, it's like, it's not like Eve is happier. Right. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like, she doesn't know how she's going to go on, but there's something about that is heroic because she's the one who survives. Mm -hmm. You know, Definitely. it's like Carolyn's going to still be bad. <laughs> you right. know I mean? She's going to still be a part of the establishment, but it's like the, 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 the hero survives. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Just what an amazing show. Can't believe it's over. Anna. Anna. But let's move on to talk about the chair, which yes. is a very different project, but honestly, equally as delightful this week to prepare to talk to you, I rewatched the show because uh -huh. I binged it in one day when it came out <laughs> last year. Uh -huh. So I was like, I loved it that much. And so I had to watch it again. So to start out, the first episode is just, you know, you're introduced to this crumbling English department and your character, June is in charge. And she says she has this little, a speech that she gives where she's like, you know, we're not teaching engineering or coding, but like we're teaching the humanities. Like it, this is still important. Mm -hmm. And I feel like there's a lot of similar similarities in studying English and studying acting. And so I'm mm. just curious what you as an actor, if you saw any similarities um, to like these professions, if there's any parallels there and just how this show champions the arts. Of course. I think that you are exactly correct. It's like um, when I, I was talking to Amanda about like, what is it that I teach? Uh, I, I told Amanda that I wanted to teach poetry because I feel, of course, you know, the English department and poetry is very close to acting. Mm -hmm. It's very obviously, you know, playwriting there's, you know, and, but the, the poetry, why, why it was so important that June uh, taught poetry was, was exactly in that Emily Dickinson poems. It's like, what is going on in, in, the, in the dashes? What is going on in between the words? What is going on between us in, in, a, in a very human way? And that's the investigation through literature and the connection and the human connection through literature. You know, I really love the, uh, at the very end, you know, when basically Bill is on trial <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> and, and, and Bill and June connect in a way that I, I don't think they'll ever be separated because their understanding and their love of literature is the same. 
their belief in the purpose of literature and the, or you want to say the arts, the humanities is the same, which is basically to, uh, to grow, to grow our consciousness, to, to connect to uh, what it is to be human. And then within that, hopefully make this world a better place. I'm, I'm talking about very, very lofty things, but ultimately when we come down to it, I don't know what else there is. Talking about connection, like even if you want to talk about, you know, bonding over a favorite book or a favorite song even, like it's really what brings people together. And I think like you said, June and Bill, you can totally see that like that is what really bonds them, Mm -hmm. especially in that final scene when they're sitting on the bench, I think, and they just are he says, oh yeah, I didn't take the settlement because I want to teach. It's like, Mm -hmm. this is what connects me to people. How could Mm -hmm. I possibly give that up? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. The space and the, the space to grow your perspective, you know, and obviously, you know, you, they, they, they want to teach a wide perspective in literature because those are the things it's like, if you live in another character's life, or if you're able to have a safe place for debate, the connection, it'll make the world a better place. You know what I mean? You'll, you'll be able yeah. to, uh, to understand another perspective. That's it. Yeah. So another thing about this show is it depicts motherhood in mm. such a fantastic and interesting way. Your character is a single mom. Juju is adopted and the show really doesn't shy away from like showing the real life like difficulties in those Uh things. An amazing scene is when June is finally kind of breaking under the pressure of everything that's going on and she's crying and Juju jumps into your lap and ends up speaking in Korean and it's such a like special scene I think um, Mm. that really kind of illustrates like it's on your face like how much that means to June and um, kind of the connection that they do have, even though they kind of squabble. Mm -hmm. So I'm very interested in how you approached playing a mom, Mm -hmm. um, what you explored about motherhood to play this role. Sure. I mean, I would say that it all began in the conversations with Amanda. Okay. And that she was very interested in expanding our understanding or the depiction of motherhood, mm-hmm. mostly to make it more human and messy mm-hmm. and alienating, because that's really a voice that isn't really explored much. So exactly all you're saying, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's like yeah. how, how you connect, you know, in a transracial adoption one how you connect with, um, you know, a, a, a very precocious, very smart kid. I don't know if you have kids in your life, but they, when they don't listen to you, <laughs> they don't listen to you. And how the difficulty it is to juggle a full-time job, taking care of your child, and also being responsible for your elderly parent, which is probably the majority of people um, right. who have to kind of balance all those things. So... You know, it's it's Amanda. She wrote it. She wrote all the um, all the challenges that the character has to go through really, really well. And I felt like I could track all the emotions really clearly. You know, one of the discussions that I have because I I have a lot of friends who um, have transracial uh, adoptions, or um, their kids are, and um, or they and the kids. And 
one of my friends, I just wanted to get it as, as best as possible because I don't, I feel like we're, that's also very, very new to have that depiction of what it is and the emotional minefield that that is and mostly the alienation. Yeah. And it was very, very important to me that the child had a voice and had an advocate, whether it was herself or another person. Now, it's not Jiyun in the case, which I actually think is correct that it's not the parent or not the mother, but it's Bill. Yeah, It's Bill who she's able to connect with. It's Bill. But then that just creates a lot of feelings for the mother. Right. You know, for the mother where it's like, I wish my child was, was coming to me with this. I wish... I wish my relationship, because I'm sure every parent goes through this. I wish my relationship with my child was different. I wish it was the way that I wanted it to be. But that is parenting it, because it's never going to be the way that you want it to be. And it's going to challenge you in ways that you just could not ever imagine. So even when she wants Bill to put her to bed or when she ignores her, or when she pushes her button, oh my God, okay. So what was that scene? I'm in the car and Everly, our little actress Juju is in the back and she's saying basically like, I need to get this to Bill. And then she, oh, she has this thing about just saying, oh, what was she saying? It was about, you don't care about, you know, my, my background. Yeah, she because she wants to make sure she has everything for the Dia de los Muertos shrine for Bill's wife. And she says, I think she says, you don't care about my heritage or something. And then you say, we're going to Mexico this summer. And she says, well, my friend's going to Disneyland. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. First. Oh, yeah. See, so first she says puta. Oh, right, right. Right. And then it's just like. It's just like the, your your kid pushes you. Yes. Yeah. And, then she, and then, so June fights back, but your kid is going to come at you with everything. And then she says, the Disneyland line. Okay. So Amanda said to me, that line, duly fucking noted, where uh -huh. you swear at your kid, which uh -huh. every parent has, or most of them have, let's just be real. Amanda came up to me at the very last minute and she said, swear at her, swear at her. Oh. She said, say duly fucking noted, not duly noted, duly fucking noted. I'm like, okay, okay. Um, and <laughs> just so throwing it in there. just throwing it in there and um, it, everything was so fast. It's like, but um, so we, I did not tell my young actress Everly anyway. So we did that once I turned around and I said, duly fucking noted. But Amanda kind of thought that I was going to say it and not look at her. And I said it and I looked right at Everly, the actress <laughs> playing Juju. And I just, and I just swore at her. And she was like, and I turned around and I was furious and I drove out. And everyone erupted in laughter, mostly the parents. Anyone That's on set, it was like, yes, yeah. So she really threw that in because, I mean, she just knows it. It's just like those those real things, those messy things um, about what it is to be a mom, where it's just like you yeah. lose your cool. You lose your cool. Yeah. Well, 
the show does not shy away from messiness in parenting or messiness in literally any other aspect of life, especially work. Uh, So let's talk about the finale again for a little mm. moment here. What do you think finally pushes June to give that speech at the hearing in the in one of the final scenes where she's mm-hmm. like, actually, what are we doing here? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. what are we doing? I, I got to tell you, I think that's just the barely scratching the surface of the real mm-hmm. question of what post-secondary education is in this country and what it is and, and how we are, and I'm sure universities are having to maneuver and deal with where we are in, you know, society right now. What I love about that a little bit, as I said before, is that you can tell that um, uh, Jean has very, very firm beliefs in what she does and is very much defending her department and Bill and and having a question. I mean, this is exactly what the whole point about post-secondary education is, is there has got to be place for, for doubt and questioning and she, how she right. questions the authority. I mean, she she's just continuing on what I think the purpose of of what that what the institution should uh, support. Uh, yeah, and it's just like she just lets it loose too. It's like it's also yeah. great, you know what I mean? Like, um, oh, yeah. one yeah, one of the things it's like you know I tried to trace, which is what I actually shot like this first or second day with David Duchovny was like, I found that June just sits on her anger so much, but every so often it's going to come out. Uh, right. Probably not at a great moment. But um, uh, but that's the moment where she does just let it all loose because she just needs to call out the hypocrisy. It's after this where, you know, she ends up being voted out as chair and we get this little montage of it seems like life is kind of returning to normal for everybody a bit after this mm-hmm. kind of crazy like blip of chaos. Um, do you, do you think that she misses being chair? What do, what do you think is her uh, like takeaway from that experience? <laughs> you know, I, honestly, I really wish we had. Uh, I wish we could explore. It. Again, I wish we could explore yeah. it in in an, in an, in the next season in another season, because it is what like the examination of like here you are as a woman who is at the not height but at the a very powerful point in her career. What is her notion? What is her experience? Then stepping out of the institution of power. I mean, she's yeah. still obviously a professor. You know what I mean? Right. What are her thoughts? How do you then go? Okay. Does she want to go back in there or how do you go around? I don't know. I don't know, but I wish I, I would have loved to explore. I would love to explore it, you know, because, cause it's just, it's so ripe. It's just so ripe. Yeah. You're right about so many things. Yeah. So no talks about a season two, any, any whispering? Uh, I, I mean, you, you probably know more than I do. <laughs> uh, it's, it's like, you know, it's never a good sign when they don't call you back. Uh, but you know, I'm, I'm here. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Yes. Yeah. Sandra, like this was a, an amazing conversation. Thank you we so much, Ashley. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us and can't wait to see you along this end yeah. of the season. Yeah. That'd be great. Thank you so much. Uh, Kristen, I 
I love Sandra Oh so much. I want to see her in more things. And, you know, the fact that Killing Eve is over now, maybe that means we'll get another drama, something meaty from her soon. Is there like something you could just picture her <laughs> killing? <laughs> it I, I really love her in a drama where she's allowed to bring some humor. Um, yeah. I, you know, she has the chair for straight comedy, but I do think I'd love to see her. I mean, I think she really was great in the sort of suspenseful thriller arena. So mm -hmm. uh, anything like that, make, you know, I don't know, make her James Bond. Why not? Let's do it. Oh, ooh. so I, I kind of like an idea like that. And you know what she's really good at? What she excels at is snark. Yes. Yeah, she's so good with snark and sarcasm. I love her so much. As we have mentioned, she could be a double nominee this year. Time will certainly tell. But that for now is this week's episode of The Awardist. Kristen, it has been a pleasure having you on here. Hope you'll come back soon. I am happy to come back whenever you want because I enjoy chatting with you. I mean, we spend all day chatting over Slack I know, about right? TV. And so why not yep. just do it on the podcast as well? Uh, yep. Well, we're going to keep doing it. I'll slack you right now with some more dates and <laughs> we'll make it happen. We'll make it happen. Uh, well, uh, Awardist listeners, if you liked what you heard here, please be sure to subscribe, rate the podcast and leave us an award winning review on Apple Podcasts. And to keep the conversation with us going, you can follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials. We're at EW on Twitter and at Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag me. Please do it. I'm at Jared Hall. We will see you next week. This episode of the Awardist podcast is hosted by Jared Hall, produced by Chanel Johnson and Sammy Junio, edited by Sammy Junio. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>